the other way. Ah, there we go. There we okay, go. even better. All right, now we're now we're starting to get up in the reds. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um. Well, uh, welcome to Unabashed Gaming, episode 16. My name is David Schimpf. I'm David Larkins, and we double-checked the episode number this time. Yeah, seriously. Good thing we have that blog. That's right. Uh, tonight we're talking about campaign creation and NPC integration. Yeah, we're going to share some of our um, best practices and maybe talk about some of the challenges that we face. Oh, definitely. In those uh, regards. And, and they're sort of uh, related, I think, world building and NPCs. I would say so. Yeah, so we'll probably do about a half hour on each and uh, see where that takes us. Exactly. So we might as well start grand with, uh, with campaign slash world creation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are a few different methodologies I tend to use with it. Um, two in particular that, you know, immediately spring to mind. One I like to call the wouldn't it be cool method. Mm. And the other I like to call the what if method um, the wouldn't it be cool method is uh, generally when I start from scratch with an idea where um, I just sort of brainstorming and I think of something that doesn't actually have any sort of uh, any sort of setting or world already created for it mm. and so I um, yeah I'm just like well wouldn't it be cool if there were hovercrafts and dinosaurs and you had to hunt them and stuff and so um, that's just sort of the the general idea that you pitch to your players and you know if they're on board then um, the very first step I like to take after uh, after getting that you know table approval is um, finding a way to put the care or put to put the player characters as close to or directly into that particular statement as possible. So either creating a plot or objective or hook, or even just throwing them into a location that is basically the distilled um, essence of that particular idea. Mm. So, you know, if you're uh, if you want to run a game in like a steampunk noir game, like uh, like you know an alternate Eberron or something, you really want to throw your characters into that kind of setting where, you know, you sort of get the uh, you get the mystery and you know the grittiness as well as all the uh, you know the clockwork machinations and such. So um, it's really about you know coming up with the idea and really selling it to your players immediately so they buy in as fast as possible. Right. Um, let's see. After uh, after I tend to do that, I uh, I try to branch out a little bit once people are sort of uh, immersed in the setting. Um, you know, either create plot points or locations that either support the uh, you know the existence of the setting. So you know, more steampunk, more noir, nor et more etc. Mm -hmm. Or um, you try to find some way to subvert it while still keeping that particular flavor. So you know, maybe it won't be noir on their next big mission. Maybe it'll be some sort of uh, I don't know some like dungeon delving or you know an escort mission something that um something that sort of breaks the mold a little bit but still keeps that uh keeps that flavor with it as much as possible i guess um how about you well um as far as uh, uh the uh, wouldn't it be cool method mm. i um i tend to go off of more like uh, taking big chunks of, of existing settings. Ah, uh, yeah. You know what I mean? So, like, I might be, um, you know, interested in a particular game, like, say, Deadlands, mm -hmm. you know? And I would I would say, you know, oh, well, it would be really cool if, um, you know, I had this particular setup. Yeah. Or, you know, I've, I've built campaigns off of um, 
sort of a wouldn't it be cool approach in terms of uh, an image that I have might have in my head mm. or even like a, a piece of uh, you know like an illustration or uh, or something where I'm like ooh this suggests a story and I want to like build something off of that definitely you know um, but yeah I mean like what you're talking about in terms of like making sure the characters have a reason to be there from the get-go is real key to yeah. um, to getting started because I mean a lot of times I don't really get I've just found through experience that if I spend a lot of time working on uh, campaign concepts and world building prior to even bringing it to the table mm -hmm. um, sometimes I'm wasting my time definitely and I'm working against myself because if I save the majority of my work for after character creation the players will have given me a lot of really good ideas definitely and you know in their characters themselves and with what they sort of bring to the table when you pitch the idea to them. Exactly. Like if, if for instance, you mentioned before, you if you create a lot of content beforehand and you have this, mm. you know, idea plotted out, you know, how thematically, how, you know, tonally it wants to go, and, you know, your players take your concept in a completely different direction, they just go crazy with it, yeah. you know, you're, you're sort of sitting on a bunch of stuff that is either going to need to be redone or refitted or might just need to be thrown out. It's, right. It's always, I always find it a lot better just to sort of see how, you know, players feel about what you're pitching first. And that way, you know, either with their characters or with their, uh, or with their perceptions about the setting, yeah. you can really start to build off of that rather, because that obviously, um, you know, playing to players' expectations not necessarily their their estimations, but you know just what they feel like they want from the game. It it'll create a much better table for you. Exactly, and and it's that's such a classic mistake um, for GMs. I think of all experience levels actually, because I've seen it with like newbie GMs, but I've also seen it with people who've been running games long enough to know better, myself included. But yeah. um, you know, uh, just trying to nail everything down definitely before you start running the game, and that's I mean, like you know, running. Uh, the Great Pendragon campaign right now. Mm -hmm. Huge, massive undertaking. It would have been really easy for me to be like, all right, guys, I'll be ready to run this in about a year. Right. You know, I mean, just as it was, it took me about six weeks, I think, before I was really ready to, to start, and I put together a pretty extensive wiki, and, and we'll get into that definitely uh, a little bit later. But, um, you know, we're, uh, we're coming up on 11 sessions into the campaign at this point here, I think, and I'm still, like, going, like... Well, uh, what do you guys think? Should we do this or that? Like, you know, um, how 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 do you want to handle your uh, your backup characters? How do you want to handle character sheets? You know, like oh, definitely, yeah. You know, um, I'm like just now putting together a spreadsheet to help me track NPCs, which is another thing we'll talk about. But yeah. you know, that wasn't something I tried to get done before I started running the game. You know, it was just like I just need to focus on, you know, the essentials of of what needs to. What exactly. I need to, to have character creation in the first session, and then the rest will fall into place. Definitely. Wait, yeah. and the the good thing about um, a good thing about the pre-written stuff like uh, mm -hmm. you know like Pendragon or, or other modules is those those have been like extensively t play tested. Right. So, you know, compared to something that you know uh, the average GM will write out extensively beforehand mm -hmm. with you know a module that's been played by you know hundreds of gamers, <laughs> is that one of them is specifically ta tailored and balanced for actual you know table play the other you're kind of you know regardless of how much experience you have with the system mm -hmm. you're still at least 50 percent of the time grasping at straws with you know difficulty levels mm -hmm. you know danger statistics uh, lethality mm -hmm. um and a lot of that you know you can try to fudge behind the uh, behind the gamer screen but at the same time 
you really kind of want to be able to play part of that on the fly without you know following you know a, a list of things you've pre-written that right. may be leading towards a bad direction that you can see as you're running it. Right. So it's it's good to be able to improv to have a little bit op of open-endedness you know between sessions or even in a session. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, to take another example, the the AD and D second edition game I'm also running. Mm. You know, I'm integrating some modules into it, yeah. but I'm not like slavishly following um, the plot lines of those modules. And if things come up as they have uh, in play, then I will gladly, you know, toss out whatever plot's going on and, and follow those threads. Yeah. You know, and so, yeah, I mean, it's it's a classic mistake to try and like, especially try and, and you know, you come up with this, wouldn't it be cool idea? Yeah. Uh, and you're so in love with it that you write out this whole you know, campaign arc before you even start running it. Definitely. So it's, it's sort of, there's sort of an art to figuring out, um, at, you know, exactly how much work to do that's not too much, but it's not too little either. Yeah. And then of course there's the point where too much becomes like sandbox, which is actually kind of reverting back to the okay side of things mm -hmm. because you have so much plan that you, your players can basically go anywhere rather than you have so much planned with one direction mm -hmm. that you're either, you know, railroading your players or you're coming up with everything on the fly once someone makes an oddball decision. Right. Sandboxing is an interesting uh, edge case because yeah. um, it is very, I found, you know, in my experience, it can be very high prep if, if you're building a sandbox from scratch. Definitely. And that's pretty much nowadays that's the only kind of from scratch uh campaign building i do because i just i just found find that being a magpie works better for me oh, you know yeah. in terms of just taking what i like from existing material and, and putting it all together in a, in a blender and, and you know blending it up but um uh, you know as far as like ground up you know sandbox is the way i you know what i do nowadays in that regard and um yeah it's really high prep but if you do it well then it becomes this wonderful machine oh, that just kind of like runs along because yeah, you know, your players can go anywhere you want and, or anywhere they want, I should say. And um, you've got tables, you've got uh, keyed maps. Yeah. You've got things that are gonna tell you how to deal with that. Definitely. And and it's something to work on during downtime where you're, you're sort of rolling for your, what happened in the rest of the region this week and uh, then figuring out how that's gonna affect where the players are right now and, uh, you know, just kind of tracking different things and maybe filling out blank parts of the map that the players seem to be moving towards. You know, definitely. So yeah, that's um, it's it's that's a very high prep uh, approach that actually pays off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting for me. I've always pretty much throughout the entirety of my GM uh, career, mm -hmm. I've ninety nine percent of the time run stuff that I myself have written. Mm -hmm. And I'm just about to fall into the uh, <clears throat> into the habit of uh, I'll be running uh, Mummy's Mask for Pathfinder, a, mm -hmm. a, a, uh, an adventure path. The first time I've ever run anything that will be more than one session of pre-written stuff. <laughs> so I've done like you know the haunting mm -hmm. and um, a few other Cthulhu one shots. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested to see exactly how much I'm able to adhere to the written stuff mm -hmm. in this p adventure path, mm -hmm. and how much I'll just be like, well, I read like the. Uh, yeah, I read the you know the 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 write up the wikia uh, or you know the yeah. written wikia of you yeah. know of this location that the the players are in and like there's this really cool area of the town that oh no like the module they don't they don't even get to go there there's this like 
there's this barge town which is just you know a bunch of ships put together in like this district of a city and like maybe they don't go there but i want them to because it's so cool so i have to come up with a reason for them to do so no 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 just yeah yeah no i mean well first of all welcome to the dark side but, yeah. uh, <laughs> um no, I mean, I, I made that conscious decision a few years ago to start focusing more on published material, mm. making making it my own because I found that that took less time, yeah, and time was at a premium at the time, and it's something that I've kind of gotten used to since. Definitely. And there's something sort of uh, satisfying about, um, you know, um, improvising within a set structure like that, mm -hmm. um, because yeah, I mean, you know, if there's something that third edition D and D uh, and Pathfinder Adventures are guilty of, it's definitely trying to present these kind of scripted uh, set piece encounters. Yeah. Um, I remember running a, a third edition uh, adventure out of a dungeon magazine mm -hmm. um, in which the players were trying to track down this magical key in a city. Ooh. And the, the clues kind of led them to a half-orc down at the docks. And that was supposed to then turn in, like, basically they had reason to believe he had the key. Mm. And so that was supposed to then turn into an exciting chase across the various um, boats that were in the wharfs. You oh, know? yeah. And uh, and there's there were like I mean like two or three pages of extensive notes for this encounter of how to handle jumping from boat to boat and cover modifiers and you know uh, skills that would be called into play and so forth. And uh, instead, when he turned to run, one of the players you know was a quick draw on his crossbow and just shot him. <laughs> <laughs> yep. You know, and uh, hey. All right, cool. I'm not going to be like, oh, no, no, you actually missed. You, or, you know, <laughs> he, he's still alive. What do you mean? I did 20 points of damage. There's no way he's still alive. No, he's still alive, and he runs away. You and, know. and now you guys get to chase him for an hour exactly. of game time. Right. Of course, that's getting more into, like, the theory of running games. But, um, yeah. <laughs> no, the point is, you know, much like how one can just roll with the punches with a scripted adventure, mm -hmm. you have to be willing to roll with the punches on a, on a campaign as well if you're yeah. working off of scripted material like uh, like a, an adventure path or you know one of the reasons I like the great Pendragon campaign so much is that it's it's almost um, I mean sometimes it gets into into pretty uh, fine detail in mm -hmm. terms of like what's happening but most of the time it's almost um, like these, these sort of abstract guidelines yeah you know that it, it doesn't even really explain itself uh, oftentimes, like in terms of why it's important to have this NPC show up at this particular time it's just like oh this guy's here and it's almost like saying, like, so you can use them or not, whatever. Definitely. You know, and uh, and there's even some notes at the beginning of the book kind of saying, like, hey, you know, if there's a knight that you need to sub out for, like, an, uh, someone that's been established in your own storyline, freaking go for it, you know? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I tend to, like, favor, you know, both in terms of writing my own stuff and working off published material, that kind of um, abstract bullet point. Like, when I write my own adventures, they're just bullet points. Yeah. You know? I don't you know, write it all out like a big elaborate thing. Yeah, you, know? you don't use proper sentences and paragraphs <laughs> and descriptive, yeah. I, me and my friends used to do that in high school, we used to write our adventures like as if they were being written for publication, Yeah. you know, like referring to the GM in the third person, you know, and like mm. all this kind of stuff. And I think that was just, you know, us kind of aping, um, well, you know, published material. Yeah, you know? exactly. Well, you know, write what you know, and at that point it was pretty much... <laughs> published material. Yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> But uh, anyway, so what about the um, the what if method? Ah, oh, the what if method. You uh, you sort of touched a little bit on it, and we've been talking a little bit about it in uh, in the last couple of minutes. Mm. Essentially, the what if method is taking a work of established canon, and you know injecting your own story into it. So you know the fan fiction method of creating adventures. Mm -hmm. So 
you know anything from a uh, anything from like a, a published franchise that is a, an RPG. So there's the you know the Serenity and uh, let's see there's the Wheel of Time, mm-hmm. but you, know, you can also do it with other you know basically any sort of module at all. Like you know I did it with uh, I did it with Dark Sun. You've done a little bit with Deadlands. Mm-hmm. It's basically you know taking that established canon, taking all the information that's given in it. You know whether it's uh, either literature or film or television. Um, anything that's you know there that can give your players a sense of what they're doing of the world itself, and you know sort of writing your own adjunct story to it. Right. Um, I also kind of like this method because it it um, like you said before it, it creates a lot of pre-made content that you can you can take from. Uh, it doesn't require you to build everything in the world for it. There's mm. you know if if it's something that's semi-established in the fan culture, there's going to be a million websites that have information that you can totally use that might not be perfectly canon but mm. you know can still fit well into the uh, into the setting you're trying to create and I think the greatest thing about it is that um, with you know established pop culture franchises you can have players that you know have already experienced it themselves and have their own perceptions about it which yeah, um, yeah. it really makes creating games for it really interesting, though, because uh, you might have your own particular perception about you know a certain franchise when you know someone else might take it completely differently. Mm-hmm. So it's um, it's definitely a like a challenge, uh, much more of a challenge than you know writing everything yourself. At least in that aspect, where you're you're definitely catering against your own perceptions, mm-hmm. which is. Uh, something obviously you're always trying to inject you know consciously or not mm-hmm. but um i have a lot of fun with it yeah yeah definitely and and that's probably my preferred approach you know yeah as i touched on already and um there's some great examples uh just from you know game writers and theorists out there talking about you know conceptualizing those sorts of campaigns uh, yeah. Ken Haidt who I've mentioned many times before on this podcast is the master of the what if mm. uh, world building project where he'll take some piece of history or legend or folklore and use that as the basis of an entire campaign Yeah, you know so um, you know like he had a great uh, uh, campaign structure of like what if um the new world, right? Mm-hmm. You know, in the age of discovery, was everything fantastical that um, people at the time thought it was. Yeah. And so, like California, really was the kingdom of the Amazons, mm. and you know, there really were cities of gold, and you know, <laughs> there really are, um, you know, kraken in the sea and and so forth. And and basically, you're running a D and D campaign, but it's set in like the new world in the in the 16th century. Oh, you know. Yeah. So it's a little bit of a mashup too, you know. Definitely. Um, but, you know, it's like it's like starting with those um, interesting concepts, you know. Or like there's another uh, writer named John Wick. Uh, he's a game designer, and uh, he did a column in Pyramid Magazine quite a few years ago um, called "Play Wicked." Oh. Yes. And uh, anyway, it was like it was a short uh, short run, but and I don't know if they're available. Uh, online, I'll I'll check and put them in the show notes if they are. Mm-hmm. But uh, basically, his the the sort of theme was like, here's how I am like a total dick to my players, and they love me for it. Oh, nice. And I remember one of them was like, you know, he was throwing out some what if concepts, and like one of them was like, what if um, you ran a Star Wars campaign in which uh, Obi Wan Jedi mind tricked Luke at the beginning of A New Hope. 
and tricked him into thinking Vader was a bad guy. Oh. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And then you can just totally change, you know, the whole setting that way, but it's still Star Wars. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, some uh, some people were throwing around ideas a few years ago where there was a run of, of Marvel Star Wars comics that came out before Empire came out. Mm-hmm. And so they were basically working off of just that one movie. Yeah. There was no expanded universe. There was no setting Bible, any of that kind of stuff. Right. And so they were just kind of, you know, like having to sort of fill in a lot of blanks, Mm -hmm. you know. And so it was like, well, what if you ran a Star Wars campaign based off of the universe presented in those comics? Yeah. You know, so that it's, again, kind of familiar to your players. But at the same time, there's going to be these key differences where it's like, what do you mean Wookiees aren't, you know, from this such and such planet, whatever their home planet is called? Kashyyyk. Kashyyyk, yes. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, or what do, what do you mean, you know, uh, Darth Vader isn't a Sith Lord. He's just a dude named Darth Vader who's an asshole. You right. know, like, what you know, they don't even know what a Sith Lord is in this, in this universe. They don't exist, you know, so... It's just stuff like that can be really a lot of fun to do, as you say. Mm. And, um, yeah, so, I don't know. That, that's definitely my preferred approach these days, I think, if I'm not just running something more or less, you know, yeah, straight out. It's always, uh, yeah, it's always like half and half for me. I, I, I tend to find myself enjoying, you know, taking established franchises that I really love to, uh, to make stuff from. But at the same time, you know... Sometimes I really just want to make a bunch of stuff that's original and yeah. you know fall into that pit for you know a good month or so before right. I give up. Right, right. And I, <laughs> I imagine that'll never change. Just yeah. at least I hope it doesn't. It's a, it's a great creative outlet. Yeah, for but, sure. Um, yeah, yeah. So in terms of like um, organizing a mm. campaign, you know, so you've you've got this concept. Your players are into it. Maybe you've even done some character creation. Got some ideas off of them. You know how do how do you go about organizing it? Uh, let's see. The f- second step after I uh, after I get you know players interested and the uh, the overall just sort of feel of the of the game set up, I'd like to create just one location that players are going to start off in, mm-hmm. uh, like a uh, that one distilled place that I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know where you'll probably encompass maybe at least four sessions. I would say mm. um, enough time to. For first session to get your players into the world to get them, you know, uh, you know, buying into the setting to get them, maybe creating a little bit of lore themselves with some background. Obviously, if you haven't created anything that gives your players a great chance to uh, to start making up, you know, even their yeah. own little bits. Yeah. Um, the second session, obviously, everyone getting, you know, just sort of more fleshed out in their roles. They're exploring this, you know, that first starting location even more. Um, the third and fourth really a lot just uh, a lot more role building and uh, you know getting immersed and that can go on for a number of sessions but I would say usually if after about the fourth I've got enough player input that I can um, you know expand a little bit more you know go out about 50 maybe 100 miles depending on you know transportation technology mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. you know start creating things that impact that starting area so you know bandits or weather systems Mm. Um, you know, any sort of external force that will, you know, through a plot point, draw your characters out a little bit more into the world. Mm. Um, you know, you can you can take that as far as you want. You can take them all the way across that globe you're creating, or you can just sort of keep them that, in that general area if that's, you know, the scope of the game that you're playing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, after at that certain point, you really, uh, 
you start to get a lot of options. I mean, you can, uh, if you're staying in one location, you can just start building history and, mm -hmm. you know, giving everything sort of a, uh, a significance in that city's, you know, past. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, if, if you're going further out, you can, you know, start connecting dots, creating little, um, you know, creating little pathways that you give your players options to, uh, to go certain places. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is obviously if you, if you haven't just completely sandboxed the entire thing before you started, which right. tends to be pretty rare, I would say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it can be, um, you know, there, there are some, uh, sort of, um, what you might call sandbox starters, I guess, mm. you know, like settings that have had a lot of stuff already filled in yeah. that you can then work off of, you know, and it's certainly a, a popular approach in like, you know, kind of really old school D and D circles, yeah. you know? Um, but, um, but you know, what you're talking about is, is actually sort of the classic, uh, way to set up a D and D campaign. Mm. Uh, in fact, um, this, the, um, the D&D product line in the 80s is generally called the BECMI line, which is Basic Expert Companion Master Immortal, okay. because there were sets called right. each of those. And, and your basic set, which was levels 1 through 3, was essentially, you know, not even like setting up a town per se hmm. for that first session. First session is, all right, so you guys are all at the mouth of the local dungeon. Right. You know, what's your marching order? And, you know, and then just kind of filling it in from there. So maybe then, you know, after your first couple sessions of dungeon delving, you do go back to town just to, like, re-equip and stuff. And so now you can start introducing this local town. Right. Then, um, you know, expert. the expert set was levels 4 to uh, 12, I think, and uh, or 4 to 13, something like that. And the idea there was that you, yeah, you would start branching out, and you wouldn't just be like raiding the local dungeon or dungeons. You would actually be traveling around a bit, definitely, as you say, going to the the local big city, you know, getting into uh, you know city intrigues there, uh, you know, mixing more with the the wider world and the politics of it, you know, absolutely. And then yeah, the companion and master sets were more about like you know moving up into positions of power mm. becoming sort of big wheels in this world that you've now established right you know and this this idea of like eventually you've got a castle and a pet dragon and you're kind of thinking back to when you're just starting out in that little hamlet and you had a you know <laughs> shirt of chain mail and a long sword and that was all you had to your name you know right and then the immortals was a whole other deal where you ascended to godhood but anyway <laughs> so um but yeah, no, that, I mean, that, that's such a classic way of starting, and, and you see that a lot kind of reskinned, really, um, across genres. I mean, you know, the, the classic Call of Cthulhu setup is that you're in Arkham. Yeah. You know, and it's Lovecraft Country, so Arkham is your home base, and you're, you're doing little uh, extended visits to, you know, uh, Kingsport and Dunwich and Innsmouth, you know. Definitely. And... Um, you know, but but maybe those first few scenarios are set in and around Arkham. You yeah, know? you you start off small with you know just what you would say uh, unusual circumstances or happenings really, <laughs> right. and you know eventually you you know as you I guess excel and like you know generate uh, experience you you start to uncover more conspiracy and cults and such possibly mm -hmm. um, until you get to a setting like you know uh, horror on the Orient Express or. Mm. Uh, masks of Narlathotep, where you're globe spanning and yeah. you know following the breadcrumbs of this you know nation's you know wide conspiracy to do something terrible. Right. Um, 
and it sort of feels that way a little bit with Pendragon too. Like you start mm-hmm. in the uh, you start in like Serum, mm-hmm. and you know you move you branch out a little bit to just the Salisbury area. Mm-hmm. But it seems like recently, even you know up to episode eleven, we're really traveling beyond where even our maps like you know give us information about. So <laughs> You're off the edge of the map. Yeah, you know, we yeah. see we see little arrows like pointing to where we're going, but you know <laughs> we're we're off the paper, we're off the arrow, and we're you know we're on that part of the table where yeah. you know there might be like a knot in the wood and uh, you're not sure what that means <laughs> right the map maker map maker's quill kind of slipped at that part yeah and, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah no absolutely and um that's actually been something i've, I've had to um try and be more conscious of you know, especially when i'm writing my own stuff mm. I, I tend to have this this um predilection towards starting uh, a campaign either far from the character's nominal home for some reason uh-huh. or um, or like they're on the road you know they're traveling you know and and I have found that like that's you know it might be like a cool way to start out because it's almost in media res and you're kind of yeah you know you get the sense of like the character this is just we're just coming into the character's lives right now and and you know they're in the mid you know it's it's not like they're kind of standing there like mannequins and then you hit a button and they started you know, right acting right but on the other hand yeah you don't get the strong sense of home yeah you know the first pendragon campaign i ran i picked a scenario that was set in the wild hills of Wales hmm. as the very first scenario, even though I was having the, the characters be from Salisbury, you know, hmm. the sort of default setting. So, you know, they never really, they never really bonded with Salisbury, right. you know, uh, ever. Like, through through the course of that, it was about a 30-year game time campaign, you know, uh, which is sort of a medium-length Pendragon campaign by yeah. the standards of that game. Um, yeah, they never really gave two shits about Salisbury, you know. And I I found that, yeah, like, if you start out just establishing that strong sense of place, it really pays dividends. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. So, um... I guess from, uh... From that local standpoint, yeah. we can uh, probably start talking about NPCs. Definitely, yes, yeah. exactly. That is a good segue. I'll edit out my awkward pause. Oh, um, <laughs> <laughs> oh what a wonderful segue. So anyway, uh, <laughs> no, but um, yeah, so part of establishing uh, a good sense of, of home and of place definitely is establishing NPCs. And so again, just to cite... To cite precedence, Your Honor, um, going back to one of the classic early AD&D modules is the Village of Hamlet. And, um, you know, it was meant to be this plug-and-play starting village, Mm -hmm. you know, and it had a little local dungeon. um, And it was originally meant to be the first of a a multi-part, you know, what we would call Adventure Path now. Yeah. Uh, Didn't end up getting uh, published as originally envisioned. Um, but you had this village and uh, essentially or you know another classic uh, D&D modules to keep on the borderlands right again you know establishing this home base and then you know what is what are in these modules just columns and columns of NPC descriptions yeah you know um, now you know some people took that the wrong way because the NPCs were described in terms of their combat stats and what treasure they had on them oh, no yeah. you're not supposed to go in and kill everyone in the village of Hamlet <laughs> that's, that's just how they expressed NPCs back then people but um, at any rate yeah no you definitely want to have at least you know a small supporting cast definitely you know and that's another sort of fine art there I think in terms of 
finding some balance because you don't want to have too few, but you don't want to have too many. Definitely, and I I absolutely find that you know with that uh, with that first area that you go into that um you know that that crystallization that um, that distillation of of that setting that you're aiming for. The NPCs that you insert into it, they can really help define the different the f- different flavors and aspects of what you're trying to create. Mm. So, you know, if you're building uh, a game where there's multiple races, you can establish their variances and their prejudices, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, mm-hmm. With these first NPCs that you know your characters are introduced to, mm-hmm. um, you're not necessarily in in you know blatant exposition of someone talking and you know they're a dwarf and they say I hate elves. <laughs> Elves, 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 blah, right. blah, blah. Right. But, you know, with uh, with that flavor, you can, you know, give general descriptions, you know, their various attitudes towards the players themselves, mm. uh, especially if the players are, you know, a variety of characters. Right. And that can kind of give, you know, the players a feel of of the world, but in an immediate sense, because it's it's affecting them rather than something that's, you know, also created in the in the game itself. So finding ways to uh, finding ways to bring those senses home to the players um, is a great way to use NPCs. Mm-hmm. Um, however, at the same time, it's uh, one of my uh, one of my great weaknesses with NPCs is that I uh, I tend not to write out their their grand objectives so much mm. as their uh, their immediate objectives, mm. and those usually tend to be just yeah um, blatant conflict with the uh, with the PCs. <laughs> I don't. I don't think I've ever actually created a character that was a hundred percent on the side of my players. Um, so sorry about that, guys. Oh my god. <laughs> That's what you get for running Cthulhu so much. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Everyone's a cultist. No one wants to give you anything for free. They just want to take your blood. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, uh, with my AD and D game, you know, I definitely used uh, NPCs to establish sort of my vision of the game world, mm-hmm. which you know I, I tend to like more human centric fantasy. So I did not have like a uh, menagerie of different demi humans running around. Oh, definitely. You know, in the in the hometown that I was establishing, um, and you know, I've I've kind of maintained that ever since. You know, like when they do encounter demi humans, they tend to be kind of in their own sort of groups you know like they're not just kind of you know so you got to go deep into the forest to find the elves or way up into the mountains to find the dwarves and that kind of thing Mm -hmm. and um you know but like yeah i mean if if i was in a a game and someone had you know a tavern scene and there was elves and dwarves and gnomes and halflings and half orcs and half ogres and everything else that would tell me a lot definitely you know about the campaign as well so yeah it's uh npcs are a great tool for just establishing the mood of the campaign definitely yeah um yeah you know like even even in a setting like call of cthulhu where it's all humans yeah um you can still establish the mood of the campaign uh just through well like you know for example it's not isn't there are no spoilers involved to say that um horror on the orient express kicks off with the characters getting an invite to a lecture right okay that right there tells you something about you know the sort of like air of this campaign mm-hmm. you know and then the people that you're going to meet at this lecture are going to tell you a bit more definitely you know they're going to be professors and antiquarians and you know sort of brainy people for yeah. the most part you know this isn't like going to be uh like a war scenario definitely you know? yeah. and yeah and creating that sort of uh 
creating that atmosphere for players, it, it sort of encourages them to, you know, sort of step up their game and, you know, their role playing occasionally. They'll, you know, focus on, you know, creating or, you know, in emphasizing the academic aspects of their characters rather than, you know, the nitty gritty, oh, I was a war hero and, you know, in the Great War. Right. Um, you know, compared to maybe like a rough and tumble in Innsmouth where you're really focusing on, you know, some of your, uh, some of your seedier aspects. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I really, uh, I really do like it when the, uh, when the game or the module or the GM himself sort mm. of challenges you to role play in a specific aspect according to your character. Mm -hmm. So, you know, whether or not you're actually authentically educated as a character or if you're just faking it and trying <laughs> to get by, it's, it, it definitely creates, you know, unique role playing experiences, which is definitely something to strive for, I would say. Absolutely. And, um, you know, so to take a page from the the Great Pendragon campaign, you're given uh, about ten local NPCs hmm. to kind of set up. You know, and they are there to kind of communicate different messages about the setting. So yeah. like, there's these different you know rich heiresses that the players can you know perhaps scheme to marry, um, or not in our case. Or but, not. <laughs> but even the them just being there tells you something because there's. There's the sort of um, scarlet woman, and there's the the pure virtuous one, and there's the kind of older one who's been widowed twice, and so she can choose if she if she even wants to marry, you know. Right. And all these things like tell you something about the the politics of you know noble ladies in the setting, and then the same thing with the knights, you know, the different NPC knights that are in this in Salisbury will tell you something. You know, there's the old grizzled warhound, and uh, and then there's the uh, you know the uh, the young uh, knight who's aspiring to be the best swordsman in the county, and then you know stuff like that. And and you know not only is it setting it up to encourage you know rivalries and um, alliances and so forth, but it's it's telling you a lot about the setting. Yeah, it's it's informing you about you know the, the gender politics and mm -hmm. you know the the various cultures. Yeah, it's it's much. Yeah, it would be it would be a much different game, I would say, mm. if you know all the base NPCs were the exact same age as the characters, and you know didn't have any you know outstanding traits other than what were you know commonly perceived as Arthurian. So right, you know the women were meek and shy, and the guys were twenty years old and dead by thirty five. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. So, um, but that also brings up you know I think the great challenge of NPCs, which is you know even if I'm running things at, at their sort of bare minimum, I'm looking at 10 characters, you know, kind of of my own that I need to be able to present to the players mm. and yet not have them take over the game. Yeah. Not have them, you know, grab spotlight time for too long. And, uh, and then play them in a way that the players are going to care about at least some of them. Yeah. And... And play them in a way that I can kind of keep them straight as well. Definitely. And not have them, even though they might have different backgrounds, not have them all start to become homogenized. Yeah. So that's always been my big challenge with NPCs. I think you do pretty well in the... Oh, uh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the way that either you make them or that they're presented, it seems that you're pulling from archetypes rather right. than just, uh, right. you know, just trying to mesh a bunch of random aspects together for characters right. and you know archetypes and stereotypes you know not saying that they're good all the time but they can really help when you're trying to uh when you're trying to differentiate your characters from each other so yeah you know even if you don't 
even if you want to have a game that sort of tends to break the uh, the various cultural barriers or, or norms of the time or the setting, yeah, it's still good to you know find something solid that still that still matters. You know, um, I always uh, I always champion Dark Sun in this way that mm. um, you know it it breaks all the natural D and D conventions of of races. But uh, instead of just you know continuously breaking them, it, it creates new ones that you know themselves become pretty iconic. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's consistency and um, I, I guess there's you know you it's always nice to have a have a character that you know still breaks that mold that you've created, but don't fall into the trap of making every NPC you make you know completely you know go against the archetypes that have existed for their you know their race or or species or class yeah because you know your players are going to get confused and you're going to get really confused <laughs> yeah i mean that kind of goes hand in hand with the with the over prep mistake is like oftentimes the, the gm who is writing the whole campaign before character creation is also you know detailing every npc yeah as if they were pcs giving you know like like building them you know if it's a point by system you know building them from scratch you know and and then you know trying to make each one sort of terminally unique in some way or another definitely you know and, it, and it's you know it's like you don't want to have every single one of your npcs have some kind of like nervous tick or weird habit because then your players are just going to think they're in a world of lunatics. Yeah, you know? exactly. Like, oh, well, that's the guy who's always got his hands in his pockets, and that's the guy with the stutter, and that's the guy who's always running his hand through his hair. I mean, it's good to have little mannerisms or or broad sort of like almost pantomime yeah. characterizations because, yeah, you can't... A lot of times when you're running a game, and especially if you've got a lot of NPCs floating around in your setting, subtlety is not something that you can afford. It's not a luxury open to you yeah. you know and and there's nothing wrong with going a little broad because honestly your players are the ones who are there to a be maybe a little complex and subtle yeah with their characters and b break those stereotypes definitely so it's like you know again you know going back to pendragon i don't have any lady knights in my setting yet right right but one of my players wanted to play a lady knight i didn't bat an eye yeah you know Absolutely, and it, was, and it was masterfully executed. It was very well done. Yes, exactly, and it, it actually worked out really well. But yeah. um, you know, you know, it, the, it's the player's job to um, to be agents of change in your game. Definitely, you know, and um, you know, it's you know, it's their game too, and so they can play however they want to play. Yeah, you know, but yeah, when it comes to NPCs, you're making your job a lot more difficult, and it's already a difficult job. Yeah, uh, if you're trying to go nuts with every single one yeah now by all means have some fun with like two or three of them definitely you know and you'll you'll find them naturally they'll just come up you know and you'll be like i love this guy i can't you know Ch i love it every time i get a chance to play this guy you yeah know? and chances are they'll be the ones that your players want to interact with the most so you'll get the most time with them you know right at the table itself which is really the best place to hash them out exactly because they get to interact in real time with the players rather than you know, you creating aspects of them just trying to remember something that happened at the table mm -hmm. or making up stuff just from scratch. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's it's really good just to, you know, keep a very, maybe just a handful or, you know, five or six NPCs that you really kind of try to know as much as possible about it. Right. And then the rest, just, you know, consider window dressing. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, don't consider them disposable window dressing. <laughs> um Something that, you know, happens a lot more in, I'd say, games like Call of Cthulhu than Dungeons & Dragons are, mm. you know, the concept of disposable NPCs that mm. are supposed to, quote-unquote, up the stakes. Mm. Um, 
you know, good example we mentioned before is uh, Masks of Narlathotep mm-hmm. with, uh, you know, your good friend Jackson Elias. <laughs> right. Um, I think killing off NPCs doesn't really send that much of a message to players. Mm. Even if it's an NPC that, you know, they've interacted with for a goodly period of time because, you know, you're really just... It's it's like you're uh, you're playing with action figures and other people are playing with theirs, mm. and you take one of your own and throw it away. Mm. Like, yeah, there's really no uh, there's no negatives for the players really at all, uh, other than just being like, oh well, that person died. I'm supposed to feel bad about it, <laughs> right? Um, but in games like Call of Cthulhu, I mean, player death, player mortality is super immediate and yeah. you know always present. So, you know, creating NPCs just so they can die isn't half as meaningful to players as, you know, having a player, you know, make their character and game with it, you know, for three or four sessions and really, you know, start to get a feel on their hopes and dreams and, you know, some of their past and a little bit of what they want for their future and then just have them, you know, die somehow. I yeah. mean, and this isn't even exclusive to uh, to Call of Cthulhu. You can do this in any game hmm. and, you know, happens pretty frequently in Pendragon. <laughs> but, um, yeah, having... Um, NPCs dying is is really kind of a cheesy and I don't want to say novice, but it sort of does feel novice mm. uh, way to to make players feel like urgency in a situation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, you know, I found myself with Call of Cthulhu actually playing against that expectation mm. to create, you know, to have an NPC that everyone's expecting is going to die. Right. Like somebody's best friend. Yeah. Right. Uh, like the Miskatonic University uh, campaign I ran. Hmm. I didn't want to kill off anyone's roommate because that just seems so obvious. Right? You know, like, and so I think all the roommates survived. I know at least the the major ones did that everyone, you know, interacted with the most, you know? Yeah. And I certainly didn't go out of my way. You know, like, if they died, it was because of dice rolls or whatever. Definitely. You know, I didn't plot it out like, oh, you're going to find Chad's body in the closet or whatever, you know? Yeah. Right. And, and, you know, similar thing actually has been happening with the AD&D campaign I've been running where just because of combat... Um, the NPCs that have been traveling with the players keep getting killed. <laughs> and I'm like, damn, you know? Like, so i um, trying to build something here, you know? Right. But uh, so, it, it, you know, I, you know, I, you shouldn't go out of your way to, to privilege NPCs, um, you know, even if you think your NPC is a, is a crucial plot delivery device. Yeah. You can always figure out a, a way around that. Definitely. But at the same time, yeah, like you're saying, don't just use NPCs as this, you know, kind of carrot and stick approach. Because your players are going to cotton onto it so fast. Definitely. You know, it's just going to be boring. Yeah. You know? And, you know, to be fair, there are, like, a lot more interesting ways to get rid of NPCs that might even be more meaningful for players. So, mm-hmm. you know, if in Call of Cthulhu your players have a contact and they're acting, you know, you know, consistently reckless and, you know, having bad things happen to them when that NPC is around a lot, mm-hmm. you know, don't necessarily have them die. Maybe just have them, you know, come up to the players and say, hey, you guys aren't good people. Um, <laughs> goodbye forever. Yeah, right, right. You, you know. can have NPCs turn, which is actually way more interesting than just having them die. Definitely. You yeah. Know. It, it sort of brings character. You know, it doesn't give characters that uh, that right or you know that inclination towards righteous indignation. Like, oh, you know, the big monster killed my uh, best friend that I don't really care about, but it gives me a reason to care, and <laughs> so I'm gonna go forward and fight rather yeah. than you know just sort of the. Uh, just sort of the apathy created when someone just abandons you because, you know, you're 
kind of not living the safest life out there. Yeah, one of the, one of the best ways to use NPCs to motivate PCs is through dick moves yeah. on the NPC's parts, especially if the NPC is in a position where you can't strike back right away. Oh, absolutely. You know, if that if the NPC is being an asshole to you, either like a former friend or a sworn enemy or whatever, um, but they're not like challenge they're not coming out and challenging you to combat or they're not in a position where you can hit back at them either physically, legally, whatever. Right. You know, players hate that crap. Yeah. And it's great because it totally gets their ire up and they want nothing, you know, more than to go after this NPC and get his ass, you know. Yep. So, uh, yeah, really good plot motivators there. Definitely. Yeah. It, uh, yeah, if, if you want to immerse your characters in the world, yes, you make someone that they hate. Yeah, and and I, you know, there's something about the game mechanics of Pendragon, probably because there's an actual passion called hate. Yep. Um, but every Pendragon campaign I've ever run has at least one NPC who's like that, where the players just hate him so much and or her the first the first uh game i ran it was this sort of witch queen and she, mm. i just she was great because i kept being able to like kind of use her like a soap opera villain oh, where gosh. she would pop up at the least expected times and they'd be like no <laughs> you know like not her again <laughs> you know like the they something would be going on and they'd kind of be trying to get to the bottom of it and then they'd realize who was behind it and they'd be like god damn it you know it was like it's like their own personal Morgan Le Fay, you know. Oh man. And um and yeah, I mean, you know, and and I've read this from other people who have run Pendragon that like they have like their players still talk about some of the antagonists from their Pendragon games as if they were real people. Right. Who they hated, you know, like, "Oh, can you believe that guy? God, I hate him so much." You know, like what a like, what a dick. Yeah. That Blaine's. Yeah, oh. right. Exactly. We've already got one in our current. Yeah. And so that actually brings up something I'm experimenting with right now, but that goes back like gosh, like to the first time I read uh, the group's basic set, which it was the second RPG I ever bought, so this would have been almost 25 years ago. And uh, there was a section in the GM advice chapter that talked about having an adversary player uh, come in, and it's, that's a person who's not a GM per se, but is an act- but is still not a member of the players group, right. the PC group. And you basically hand off a few of your main antagonists to the adversary player who doesn't necessarily know what you're planning and doesn't necessarily know a lot about the player group right beyond what their char- their you know new characters would know mm-hmm. um, and it's up to the adversary player to kind of come up with plots for those characters right and then you know uh, either just play them out in play or come to the GM beforehand and be like all right so for this session I want to do blah blah and blah yeah and, you know it's like oh, okay well I'll work that in and um, so I, I've appointed my wife Desiree to be the adversary in our Great Pendragon campaign because she's played through that once before. So it wouldn't have been terribly exciting for her to be a player again. Definitely. Um, but she did want to participate, and I thought this is perfect because yeah, you know, you do rack up a lot of NPCs. Yeah. In in this uh, campaign, it's it's a big campaign, and um, you know, my weakness is that. Um, like in between sessions when I'm plotting things, I tend to focus on only one NPC, mm. you know, and I kind of start to forget about some of the other threads that I've got going, yeah. you know, and I might come back around and pick up those other threads, but they've been lying dormant that whole time. Mm-hmm. And so it can feel, at least to my side, a little artificial, where it's just like, oh, now all of a sudden we're dealing with this guy again, you know? Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, because I remembered he existed, <laughs> you know? Mm. And so I wanted to have this uh, adversary play experience 
um, just to see how it worked, mm-hmm. you know. And I, you know, I'm really enjoying it because she's got three characters currently, one of whom's an open antagonist, uh, one of whom's like a friendly rival, and one of whom's kind of this wild card, right? You know, and um, you know, she she can switch back and forth between them between sessions, and you know, she loves plotting. We were just you know earlier today mm-hmm. <laughs> talking about some. You know, she was throwing some ideas my way about what, what you know, she might want to do down the line. And, you know, it's great. Um, it, it really takes a lot of uh, work off of my plate in terms of trying to keep these key antagonists, you know, at the forefront of my brain in addition to everything else. Absolutely. Yeah, so it's working out really well. Obviously, it's not the sort of setup that um, a lot of people can afford to do just in terms of, you know, like if you only got three players in your group. Yeah. You know, you're not going to want to sacrifice one of them to be the adversary, especially since what I'm finding is that with adversarial play, you know, there's not a whole lot, unless the adversary is, like, directly involved in the plot. Yeah. There's not a whole lot for them to do, and Des will sit out the occasional session Mm. if she's just like, ah, there's nothing. And I'm like, okay, fine. Yeah. You know, and she doesn't mind, again, because she's played this before, so she's not missing out on anything. But Mm -hmm. I could see, like, if I was running something of my own creation... And I'd be like, hey, you know, Jim, uh, you're not needed this session, <laughs> you yeah. know, like, or uh, you might be needed a little bit. So if you don't mind just kind of sitting there uh, until we might have a chance to bring your, your adversarial character in. Yeah. You know, so it's, it, you know, it's not something I think you can do for like kind of any campaign experience. Definitely. You know, but certain times, you know, the stars will be right and you can, uh, you can make it work. You yeah. Know? I could see, like, you know, speaking of that, uh, Stars Coming Right, I could see, like, a big Cthulhu campaign that had, like, you know, major villains sprinkled throughout it, like Nyarlathotep has that, you oh, know? Oh, definitely. Yeah, they have one in, you know, every act. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, ha- bring in, you know, ideally, you know someone who's run Masks before or who has read it or who has listened to an actual play of it. Mm-hmm. You know, hey, come on in, play the adversary, be so-and-so, you know, and, yeah. uh, you know, and each chapter they can be this different plotting adversary who's going to make the PC's lives hell. Definitely. Yeah. So that's my quasi-endorsement for adversary play. It's it's definitely an interesting concept. It's, yeah, it really does require that familiarity and that, you know, set um, progression to uh, to really be able to work super well without a lot of, you know, foresight, or foresight and, you know, mm-hmm pre-writing but um mm-hmm. it's definitely an interesting concept i've uh i've dabbled in the adversary system before i even knew it existed mm. um as both a player and a gm mm. and i've found that um yeah it's I, i've gotten in the bad parts of it where it's you know there's there's a good portion of the time where you're either you know biding your time and just going along with stuff so you're not really role-playing you're just trying to frantically think of some way to throw a monkey in the or yeah a wrench in the works monkey, monkey in the wrench a monkey in the wrench. Throwing yes. a monkey in the wrench. That's right. Um, and then also, you know, just having players, you know, that are uh, that are, you know, adversarial but unknown, unbeknownst to other players. Mm. Oh, sure. Yeah. So it's, um, you know, that's always difficult because it's, uh, you know, they're they have to, they have to know what's going on. And if you're writing your own game, you know, they don't know what's going on. You don't know what's going on. So it's it's all very freeform and not very well constructed together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I could see, theoretically, if you're creating your own setting, yeah. your own world, bringing someone on board who you then give carte blanche to to create their own character. Yeah. And then it's like, you tell me how this character fits into the world 
how their plots fit into the world, and mm. then I will work that into my design. Definitely. You know, but it, it would have to be kind of a collaborative thing, yeah. you know. Um, and of course, again, with sandbox play, you don't have to worry about that. And so you could definitely do adversarial play in oh, sandbox. Definitely. definitely. In fact, I think it would work really well. Yeah. Because the, the whole point is like, as a GM, you don't necessarily know what's what's going to happen, you know, two or three sessions down the road, and having someone come to you and be like, yeah, so my ne- my evil necromancer um, has been spending power points for the last three months to build up an undead, undead army, so I'm ready to invade the, you know, PC's home country now. Yeah. Oh, cool. Good to know. <laughs> yeah, excellent. All right, we'll get that going. Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, uh, it's funny we keep advocating sandbox because we don't actually run a lot of pure sandbox games. But... Yeah, I'll, I'll be writing a sandbox pretty soon. But um, oh, good. Yeah, good. at least I'm I'm gearing up for that. Nice. At least you nice. know psychologically. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's mainly the prep that takes a lot out of you. But... Yeah. At any rate, um, well, in terms of yeah, so that's a semi segue into organization. Um, just kind of I guess final thoughts on organization. Mm. Um, so we've mentioned Obsidian Portal in the past. Yeah, it's a great site. Yeah. Um, there are any number of other methods. I know a lot of people use um, programs like OneNote, mm. um, for example. Uh, you know, the, these sort of uh, brainstorming programs that are meant to be more like kind of a corporate <laughs> kind of uh, yeah. um, uh, idea generators, you know. They're actually great for organizing campaigns because you can have different tabs and then you can... You can set them up in a way. I'll post a uh, a link in the show notes. I was just watching a, a really interesting tutorial on using OneNote to organize um, NPCs, adventures, hmm. campaign locations, everything. You can actually link uh, between your tabs so that you can have like um, you you know you can expand and, and contract your NPC descriptions so that there's just like um, you know your sort of qualitative description for your npc unless they're in combat and you click on it and it expands out their stats you know nice. really nice stuff you know again sort of front loaded in terms of setting it up but once you get it set up you're good to go yeah you know um of course there's the classic gm's binder you oh know, yes just the old three ring binder get some dividers divide it up into sections usually it's going to be something like you know adventure plans npcs locations yeah um you know, and and maybe uh, you know maybe like a campaign uh, guide that you're writing. You Definitely. Uh, and you know, I mean, Obsidian Portal and sites like that are basically digital binders. Pretty much, in that yeah. Sense, you know, and yeah, I mean, you know, in terms of me running NPCs in the Pendragon campaign, I, you know, I've just learned from experience. You know, the the approach I'm taking now with with the Obsidian Portal is just to be really super diligent. And just enter every single NPC yeah. that is going to come up in any kind of recurring, significant way, or even potentially significant way. Definitely. You know, if it's just a one-off serving mate, I'm not going to bother. Right. But pretty much anything above that, you yeah. know, anything that shows up, you know, twice. Yeah, exactly. Or who played a, a major, you know, uh, role in one of the adventures. Yeah. You know, they're going to get an entry because we might come back to them. Yeah, definitely. You know, and and so that's kind of where I started in terms of organizing, and I've got, I don't even know how many NPCs on there now. Oh, quite a bit. Quite a bit. uh, Probably 40 or so. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, they're all clumped in with our player nights, too, and I... uh, Yeah, yeah. and you've got a few backups on there. And I'm still adding characters. (laughs) Yeah. But the nice thing about Obsidian Portal is that you can uh, tag as much as you want. Exactly. And there's also a quick find bar right at the top, so you just have to start typing in even part of the name, and it'll pull it up. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's a nice tool in that way. Um, but you know, I'm finding that even then, I'm um, using some other methods. So I mentioned earlier a spreadsheet that I'm putting together mm -hmm. because I just, again, you know, trying to minimize the amount of time and energy I'm putting towards tracking these NPCs. Oh, definitely. Uh, with a spreadsheet, I can just use the spreadsheet to sort of do these, you know, auto calcs every year mm. uh, to, you know, just see how their fortunes fared for the year. Yeah. Did they get married? Did they have a kid? Did any of their skills improve? You know, I can program all that in and so that, and then just hit a button and refresh it. Yeah. And it'll tell me, oh, okay, great. Uh, Earl Roderick's battle skill just went up by one. Excellent. Right. I'll make a note of that. You know, because otherwise I'm not going to go through every single NPC and like put them through a winter phase. Right. But at the same time, I don't want to just let, you know, leave them lying fallow so that they have the same lives that right. they started with, you know, 10 or 15 game years earlier. Definitely. You know, I want them to grow somewhat because that's going to help the players feel like they're in an organic world. Yeah. And then the other thing I'm doing is that I, I find myself kind of scrambling a lot during gameplay to pull up their stats. Um, you know, because I've, I've just got a lot of things in front of me. Right. So I'm going to, you know, kind of do a dual thing of keeping digital records, kind of like what you guys are doing with your character sheets. Yeah. Keeping a digital record on the wiki, but then also having a, a paper, mm. you know, sheet in front of me in the form of a, a four by six index card. Yeah. That just has their key stats. And, you know, alphabetized in a little, nice little box, so I can just pull them up real quick. Definitely. You know, I mean, that's still faster for me. I would know? still, yeah, I would still say at the same time, like, uh, generating characters, it's still a lot faster for me to do it on paper and transcribe it to uh, mm -hmm. to an electronic document than it is for me to, you know, tab between or, or look yeah. between, you know, a computer screen and a paste paper. Exactly. So it's... Uh, you know, paper is still very useful um, it is. for our hobby, which I'm I'm glad to I'm glad it's still like that. Me too. Yeah, yeah absolutely, and um, especially in gameplay. Oh, definitely. You know, in, in between, I'm happy to use you know Obsidian Portal, or you know, if I were ever to get on OneNote, I'd be using it all the time in between games. Yeah, but there's just I mean, you know, we're just trained to interface with you know sort of tactile, uh, yeah. you know, paper-based stuff at least you know for now. And um, I yeah, think, I mean, yeah. it's I, just it's just going to be a lot easier just to have an alphabetized box full of NPC cards that I can just be like, all right, Nanteliod N and A, there he is, Whoosh, pull him right out. You know? Definitely. I mean, as long as we're still rolling physical dice, we're still going to have that tactile sense of writing on you know actual scraps of paper and. Right. Plus, it's just a lot easier, you know, if I have Earl Roderick's card and his battle goes up by one on the spreadsheet, I just erase his battle score and write in a new one. Exactly. You know? It's just, it actually takes longer to update it, yeah. you know, <laughs> on the screen, even if it's like, a, you know, uh, something that I'm just keying in data, I still have to, like you say, kind of alt-tab over to it, find it, you know, select it with my cursor, type it in. Exactly. You know. So anyway, um, there's still room for, for analog, I guess. Definitely. I would... <laughs> I hope that continues. I yeah. I'm much I much prefer analog to electronic, even if it's you know easier to save stuff on the internet. It's yeah. It just is easier to find stuff on a piece of paper. Yeah, and uh, you know I um, these have been all our personal experiences. Mm. So if uh, anyone listening wants to share their experiences, I mean maybe you find uh, that you go all analog or all digital. Or, you know, are there some other uh, organizations, sites, or programs that you use? Um, or just uh, general world building or NPC organizing or running uh, thoughts? Uh, love to hear them. Absolutely. If, you're, uh, if you have experience building Sandbox and mm. you would like to give me any hints, 
By all means. I'm going to be looking up OneNote right after this. <laughs> I'll send you the tutorial. <laughs> yeah, so, um, but I think that's pretty much our time limit, so... That's about right. We'll, we'll leave it off for, for now. Well, once again, my name is David Schimpf. I'm David Larkins. Thanks for listening. And just a reminder that here at Unabashed Gaming, we love hearing from our listeners. Head on over to unabashedgaming.blogspot.com and leave us a comment, or call our Lake Geneva, Wisconsin voicemail number 262-729-9774. We also have a SpeakPipe link on our blog page. You can leave us a message directly through your computer's microphone or headset. Comments, questions, topic ideas, whatever you want to share with us, all is welcome. Hope to hear from you soon. Thanks.